It's been almost a month, on May 6th, 2023, in Westminster Abbey, Charles III was experiencing his process of coronation, King Charles. The estimate is that approximately 400 million people around the world watched this event online through their TV. And after the coronation of King Charles, the the UK's national anthem is played. And it's called God Save the King. That song was adopted in 1745. It is common for countries to have a national anthem. Lyrics in this 1745 adoption were a prayer to God. And that's what comes across when God Save the King is played. Even the title of it, God Save the King, is a prayer and a title. And it is a prayer for the monarch's reign and the monarch's victory. But there is an older God Save the King prayer, and it's Psalm 20. 2,700 years before the United Kingdom adopted the national anthem, King David wrote Psalm 20, the gist of which is this, God save the king. It's, psalm, it's a psalm that is nine verses long, so it is not long. But it comes in three unequal parts. There is a prayer itself, the may you, may the Lord, may he. Verses 1 to 5 are petitions. And after this prayer, in verses 6 to 8, the confidence of David is made clear. He says, "I, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. So he makes these petitions and declares his confidence that God will answer in verses 6 to 8. In verse 9 is the core of the prayer. And I think verse 9 is important, not only because it summarizes what the basic idea of Psalm 20 is about. It's going to help us see who the prayer is regarding. The prayer is regarding Israel's king. In verse 9, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So we find petitions in verses 1 to 5, David's confidence in verses 6 to 8, and then the bottom line, verse 9. What is this trying to communicate? A prayer that God will save his king. Sometimes the label a royal psalm is applied to psalms like this. Um, A royal psalm versus maybe a psalm of lament and suffering. We've seen those already in our, our study of book one. Psalm 20 indeed has a royal tone throughout where David and the people joining with him are praying for the king of Israel. David is writing this psalm, and in Psalm 21, we see another psalm that is also written by David and also pertaining to Israel's king. Here's something we can notice then. Psalms 20 and 21 belong together. Not only because they're right next to each other, thematically they are connected. You notice how each of them are written by David, and Psalms 20 and 21 have this relationship. Psalm 20 is, God, here's my prayer... Psalm 21 is, thank you, God, for answering that prayer. So that's the relationship between the Psalms. Psalm 20, petitions to God. Psalm 21, a celebration of God's answer of those petitions. We know that this is not a psalm meant for David only individually. It's written to the choir master. It is a psalm of David that it might be sung because David would die. This is a psalm... For Israel's king that endures beyond the days of David. This is something that the people of God ought to pray for their king. 
It's to be preserved and recited and sung when the Israelites would gather together with a mindfulness toward the one God had established as their anointed one. That means in verses 1 to 5, these are not only parts of what David would pray. These petitions are what people would join David in praying or join David's words long after David's death and petitioning God on behalf of their king. And the reason is, and as you see worked out in the Old Testament storyline, as goes the king, so goes the people. And that integral connection in the Old Testament means it's not just for the king's welfare that they are praying. By praying for the Lord's blessing upon and strengthening of the king, it's for all their well-being that they do this. David is Israel's king at the time of this writing. And yet he's praying for the king of Israel, which he currently occupies, and no doubt words meant far beyond David's day. The king of Israel would sometimes lead in and join others in petition when some kind of battle or conflict was near. In chapter 20, when it says in verse 2 that he needs help from the sanctuary and support from Zion, in verse 5, when people are shouting because of deliverance and raising up banners in verse 5, and that the Lord saves his anointed in verse 6, And his enemies collapse in verse 8 because these enemies are like those trusting in chariots and horses. Whereas the king trusts in the name of the Lord. We have this, what feels like a battle context. And there's Old Testament precedent for this. And an example is in 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat is the king in Israel. And King Jehoshaphat calls the people together because they're coming to battle. And he says, hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And then the text tells us, when they had taken counsel with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise the Lord in holy attire as they went before the army. Which means, you're to picture this this, uh, march toward battle mixed with singers unto God, praising God with words like in 2 Chronicles 20, give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. And then the text tells us that when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were routed. Indicating that when the people are drawing near to battle, The king is to set an example of trusting in the name of God and calling others to trust in the name of God and not in the horses and chariots at their disposal. Chapter 20 of our study in Psalms are the words of David and the people to call upon God to give victory to the anointed one. Let's look at the petitions in verses 1 to 5. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. David is praying this for the king. Now, he's currently that king. So as people pray this psalm with David, which they would, like at the end of verse 9, may God answer us when we call. There's this larger group besides David in view. They're praying that God answer the king. May he answer you in the day of trouble. Because there's not a reign of any of the kings in the Old Testament that didn't see a day of trouble. Sometimes many days, many seasons, years of conflict and affliction. And not just... Corporately and internationally. 
But even spiritually and physically within the lives of those kings, there were days of much trouble. And they are to pray that God would hear the prayers of the king. And you know what this is assuming? They're assuming that the king is someone who turns to God. In other words, may the Lord answer you, king. It means they are implying and they are making this prayer on the basis of that this king is one who turns to God. He's not turning from God and trusting in other things. He's calling upon the Lord. And these people say, God, will you, may you answer this king. May the Lord answer you, king, in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And the king is the leader of the Israelites in the Old Testament. The Israelites descend from Jacob, don't they? The God of the Israelites is the God of Jacob. We have the whole covenant formula rooted in Genesis and Exodus. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the patriarchs. Calling upon the God of Jacob recalls that. Who is the God who shall answer King David? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The name of the Lord refers here to His character. What God is known to be because of what He's disclosed to His creatures about who He is and what He is like. God is holy and righteous and good, perfectly just, and He is exalted in all the earth, worthy of worldwide praise and worship. And the name of God is the protection and the refuge for God's people. This means these people are praying as if their king turns to God. And as if their king is having refuge in God so that the very name of the God of Jacob protects the king. This means the king would experience the refuge and protection of God in verse 2. They pray, may he, God, send you, this is the king, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. The sanctuary and Zion are words that recall the city of Jerusalem, right? And in the days of David, Jerusalem was growing in significance. The significance was increasing Even though the temple had not yet been built, David's son Solomon would build the temple. But David had called for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This means when he says, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion, they're viewing this as the place where God has come to dwell among sinners and has chiefly dwelled to interact with his people, to reveal his word, to bless his people, to invite them to come with sacrifices and offerings. The sanctuary in Zion are wrapped up with that city. And so they're saying, may the God who dwells with you help you, strengthen you, that help and support come from Zion. The help and support must mean that God would know what the king needs. He would know how to properly strengthen him. How to secure the victory for the people. How to advance the cause of the righteous and to defeat the cause of the wicked. That God would know how to do this. So they pray, help Lord. Send support Lord. From Zion Lord, extend your power. And then in verse 3. What else do we know about this king? Not only is he one who prays unto God, he's a king who keeps the law. They pray, may he, God, remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. What's the reputation of this king? This king is not of the mindset, hey, you know what? The people who aren't king, they can bring the offerings. They can take the sacrifices. The king takes offerings and sacrifices in verse 3. 
Verse 3 has in view the place of sanctuary and sacrifice to which the people, including this king, would bring their offerings sanctioned by the ceremonial law. By all the sacrificial regulations that morning and evening the sacrificial laws would be followed. And you know who attends to the law? The king. We know this to be true from Deuteronomy 17. Moses was providing the word of the Lord to the Israelites in view of the coming king. In view of their coming monarchy. And in Deuteronomy 17 and in verses 17 to 20 of that chapter. The king was told to write out his own copy. Word for word of the law of Moses. That he might internalize it, study it, meditate upon it, and keep it. Verse 3 holds out hope that this is a king who keeps the law. A king who sees the offerings and sacrifices required by the law of God and who does them. And so you know what the people are praying? Oh Lord, remember and accept those offerings. That the king's sacrifices would not be in vain. That's what remember and regard with favor have in mind. It means to receive them, to accept them. It's the opposite of rejecting them. That the king would be uh, rejected. That's unthinkable in this prayer. That this king would ignore God's law. That's unthinkable in this prayer. That the offerings and sacrifices are brought by this king who trusts the Lord, depends on the Lord, prays to the Lord, whose refuge is the Lord. You know what God will do? He will regard with favor those sacrifices. That's what they're praying In verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. What might the king's plans and his desire be? Well, let's just start with the word victory. That's probably number one at the top of the list for the people. If there are people coming against the Israelites, if there is a brewing, tumultuous set of trouble, days of affliction that are coming, what is it that the king's heart would desire? Victory. What plans would he have? The defeat of his enemies. So here are the people of God. Here's David setting the example. What should they pray regarding their king? That the king's desire and that his plans be completely fulfilled. This has in view a king who wants what is right. In other words, if this is a king who wants what is unrighteous, well, we don't want those plans fulfilled. If this is a king whose desires are astray and out of conformity with the law of God, we don't want those desires met. But that's not the king these people have in view. They're viewing a king that if they were to pray for his desires to be fulfilled and his plans to be accomplished, it would be a glorious thing. That's what they would want. And it's, again, not just for the well-being of the king. As goes the king, so goes the people. And at the last part of the petitions in verse 5, the people led by David, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Battlefields were not quiet places where there are shouts and trumpet blasts. Not just the actual event of battle, but the joy and shouting of the people of God in vindication. You see this in the historical books of the Old Testament. You see this here in the Psalms, these poetic writings. We're here in verse 5. They're proclaiming deliverance. Your deliverance, your salvation. In other words, the king could not save himself. And what does God bring? Salvation for the king. And as goes the king, so goes the people. So they shout for joy over his deliverance because his deliverance means their deliverance. No wonder they're overjoyed. No wonder they're shouting and shouting for joy in verse 5. 
in the name of our God, set up our banners. The banners is this this emblem that in the ancient world would indicate one's allegiance. A banner, some sort of flag over one's tribe or speaking of one's territory or one's nation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. They're shouting for joy over the king's salvation. And it's emblazoned with the victory of God that he has brought through the king and the army. In the name of God, we set up our banners. The banners display their allegiance. The banners are going to be displayed in the name of our God. Meaning here, he says, our allegiance to God is made clear. In the name of our God, we set up our banners Because God is the creator and redeemer, the refuge and sustainer. He's the one who is righteous and altogether good. He is holy, holy, holy. So when they set up banners in the name of God, their worship of God and their attending to the glory of God animates their actions. They shout for joy. They set up their banners and they pray lastly in verse 5, May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Because again, like verse 1, the king is a king who prays. The king is one who calls upon the Lord. He has petitions. He's interceding. And they are saying, Lord, may the Lord fulfill everything that you have prayed. In verses 1 to 5, we've noticed in these verses the petitions that David and the people are making regarding who occupies the leading role of Israel's government, the king. And in verses 6 to 8, David has no doubt that God will defend his anointed one. The reason for this may also have to do with the placement of this psalm. David is writing these words of confidence in verses 6 to 8, right after Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19 covered two very important realms, the glory of God revealed in creation in verses 1 to 6. But in the remainder of Psalm 19, the glory of God revealed in the Scriptures is emphasized and meditated upon by the psalmist. And David says the following about the words of God. In verse 7, that God's law is perfect. It's without flaw. His testimony is totally trustworthy and sure. His commandment is pure and His precepts are right. His rules are righteous altogether. When David petitions God for what he does... He says in verses 6 to 8, I'm so confident of this because David knows the promises and covenants of Yahweh. He's confident because he's been rooted in and his prayers flowing out of his knowledge of the word of God. We've seen a myriad of examples in the first 19 Psalms of how David has been shaped by earlier scripture leading him to pray the way he's praying. Why is it that David is so confident in in verses 6 through 8 about what he's just prayed that he knows God's going to answer? Because David knows God's covenant. David has been one to whom promises were made. He's a psalmist in the book of Psalms, yes, but he's a king in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. He makes promises. He makes a promise that one from David's line is going to reign forever. More on that in a moment. In verses 6 to 8, here's the confidence. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed one. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. 
But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The confidence of David, it pivots on this language, now I know. You know, see, David, David doesn't say, now I know that the victory is ours because we have many horses and chariots. He's clear in verse 7, that's not where he is hoping. His hope is in God, and God has spoken and promised things, and God is not unfaithful. God doesn't say one thing, and then this proved false. David knows that if God has said it, he can trust the Lord. He can believe those promises, and God is faithful to covenants he's made. He's made a covenant with David. He says in verse 6, I know that the Lord saves his anointed one. Oh, that word... That word anointed one has been used two earlier times in Psalms. And both occasions where anointed one was used before Psalm 20. It was about the coming seed of David, the son, the Messiah. The the first of those two places is Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, he asks why the nations are raging and gathering together and taking counsel against the anointed one. And we find out as we read the psalm, this anointed one is the one who will rule the nations in perfect power in holiness. Who will subject the wicked and who will vindicate his people. And the earth should tremble before the sun. The anointed one in Psalm 2 is the Messiah. The one God would send in the fullness of time to be born of the Virgin Mary promised in the ancient words of the prophets. And in psalms like Psalm 2. The second place before Psalm 20 where anointed one is used is Psalm 18. Right before Psalm 19, the very last verse, here's what we read in Psalm 18:50. Great salvation he brings to his king and steadfast love to his anointed one, to David and to David's seed forever. The offspring or the son, the promised seed who will embody the steadfast covenant love of God is the one promised in 2 Samuel 7, the anointed one. David says, I know God saves his anointed one. Now, I don't think David primarily has himself in view in Psalm 20. Because for those with ears to hear and eyes to see in the Old Testament, David and any of the, believe, the contemporaries around him who are believers and trusting in the promised deliverer, they know that this is one from David's line who will come, who will be raised up and delivered, the anointed one of God. And David says, I know the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Answering from his holy heaven... It reminds us of verse 2, help from the sanctuary and support from Zion. Because the earthly sanctuary was a reflection of the transcendent heavenly power and authority over all things possessed by the God of heaven and earth. Answering from his holy heaven is a way of saying divine deliverance is what will be answered with the saving might of his right hand. The might of God's right hand reminds us of Exodus. The Israelites celebrate in Exodus 15 how the mighty right hand of the Lord and the outstretched arm of God overcame the Egyptian captivity and delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea and and crushed the Egyptian armies that had followed. David says in verse 7, here's where we trust. And he would want everyone to echo who's reading those Psalms in the ages that would follow. That they would be prompted in their hearts to ask themselves, 
Is what David is saying as the basis for his trust, do I share that? Do I resonate with that? Because he says some trust in chariots and in horses. Why might they do that? Some trust in chariots and horses. Those are used to represent trust in something other than God because this is primarily a military context. And the weaponry of chariots and horses would be formidable if you had them in an army and you were going to face an army that didn't. Your chariots and horses would so give you a superior position, it was just absolutely humiliating for the other side. And there are militaries, David would say, some trust in what they have. Their particular resources, their particular strategies, their particular advanced weaponry, whatever else, their chariots, their horses. David doesn't say, I don't want an army with chariots and horses. He has chariots and horses. They're just not the basis of his trust. In verse 7 he says, and, with the, and the people with him, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The name of the Lord our God was mentioned in verse 1. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. They trust in this name. The name that is the refuge for sinners. Weapons are of no avail before the Lord. David writes this psalm with memories. He remembers as a young man facing the great Philistine warrior Goliath. That's not something as a young man you'd ever forget. He knows what it is like for a mightier army, the Philistines, to come against the Israelites and this intimidating warrior with someone holding a shield and whose own armor and javelin were so intimidating by force and stature that nobody would go against David. I mean, nobody would go against Goliath. And in 1 Samuel, what you read is David defying Goliath and essentially say, I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David's trust was in the name of his God. Not in his own height, and not in who had the bigger shield, and not who had the better weaponry, not who had the more advanced armor. David came with stones. And yet when he swung that stone, the power of heaven was in it. And it crushed Goliath's head. He fell down to the ground, and by his own sword, Goliath was beheaded by David in that chapter of 1 Samuel. David knows what it is to trust in the name of God. He has experienced the faithfulness of God. This is not just abstract, removed from real life kind of theology where he's saying these kinds of things that don't ground in our day to day. He says, listen, some trust in chariots and some in horses. I mean, can all be tempted to those kinds of things, if not chariots and horses, other things. Money and power. Authorities and positions. Reputation. Health and strength. There can be all manner of what can fill in a list that brings you your deepest sense of refuge and hope. And David says, yeah, there are some who do that. Those things aren't worthy of your trust. Trusting in the name of the Lord our God. Why would David do that? Because God never shows himself untrustworthy. Oh, we live in such an age where we realize in our humanity how frail and failing we are. How astray from righteousness and wisdom we can go. How untrustworthy in our hearts we can show ourselves to be. 
Wouldn't you want to hope in what would not fail? Wouldn't you want to trust what actually could never be shown to be untrustworthy? We don't know anything around us like that in this fallen world. But behold God, here he is, the name of the living God. We trust in him, not in chariots and in horses, because God is worthy of our trust and is never untrustworthy. Look at the outcome of this in verse 8. Those who trust in the chariots and horses, I think they're in view at the beginning of verse 8. They collapse and fall. And they thought to themselves, we will not collapse and fall. We've got chariots and horses. We're not going down. Look at our horses and look at our mighty chariots and how greater they are than what they are. So we're standing up. It's those others that are going down. He says here, they collapse and fall. What about those who trust in the name of the Lord our God? We, that's the last part of verse 8. The we, we rise and stand upright. It has this picture of vindication in the presence of God. To dwell in the knowledge of God where the wicked do not stand before the Lord, but fall in judgment before the righteous God. And the people of God dwell with their Redeemer. We rise and stand upright. So we've seen in verses 1 to 5 the petitions. We've seen verses 6 to 8 David's confidence and the people's confidence who join him in that song. The whole point, the core of the prayer in verse 9 is this. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. O Lord, save the king is what all those petitions are about. There were a lot of them in verses 1 to 5. May he do this. May he do that. But when it comes right down to it, what they want is the king to be saved, delivered. So, O Lord, save the king. May he, that's God, may God answer us when we call. They want the Lord to answer the king in verse 1. They want the Lord to answer them in verse 9. Whether it's David or the group with David, they're praying for the Lord to hear their cry. May he answer us when we call. We've seen that Psalm 20 is written by David for the choir master, that the Israelites would pray these words for their king, and not just David as their king, though that was their current state, but also that the kings to come would be those for whom they would pray these kinds of words, a royal psalm. And they could pray with confidence in God's covenant promises, God's superior power, and His heavenly throne that reigns over all. But consider how this psalm points Far beyond the days of David. How the prayer and the confidence in this psalm is best understood in light of the person and work of Christ. The reason to consider this, again, is because David writes the psalms as someone who's in covenant with God, where God has promised a future seed. And David has already mentioned him in Psalm 2. He's already mentioned him in Psalm 18. And David writes psalms with a view toward the coming son from his line. The promise is that a future son would reign forever and reign victoriously. In fact, the verse 6, the Lord saves his anointed. It's the word anointed one. It's the word Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. The word Christ in the New Testament is Messiah in the Old Testament. Same title, same referent. Christ or Messiah means anointed one. And thus far in the Psalms, David has been pointing with this phrase anointed one to the coming seed that God promised to raise up to reign forever. 
David offers a prayer, and along with the uh, people who join him, may God answer you, king. These are things David wants God to do for his descendant. Prayers David is praying for his son. One commentator puts it this way. The psalm was given to the choir master to teach the people to hope in the Messiah. When we read about a king in Psalm 20, David is writing about the Christ. When we read Psalm 20 in light of Christ, we read it as a psalm in which David and his contemporaries and any future generation are offering this prayer that God would do what he does for his beloved son, the king, the anointed one. This makes a big difference in the way you read the psalm. A Christological reading of Psalm 20 leads to a richer reading. Think of these verses In light of them referring to Christ. Verse 1 would be a prayer to deliver the son of David from his day of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And indeed the ministry of Christ was permeated by hostility. We even see the temptation of the evil one. The conspiracy of religious leaders. The persecution and rejection of those who sought to end his life earlier than the hour that had been appointed. And of course, the hour would only come to pass in his death at the appointed time of the Lord at the cross. They pray that the king would be delivered from the day of trouble. Would you consider with me this morning that this deliverance, could we consider the answer to this prayer, the deliverance of the Lord Jesus from the dead? Verse 2, it's a prayer that the king would be helped and supported from Zion. Consider how in the earthly ministry of Christ, help and support strengthens his ministry. The angels minister to him after his temptation. All that Jesus did, he did by the power of the the Spirit. He prays and communes with the Father to be strengthened, that he might glorify and fulfill all he's been sent to do. Yes, when we say, may you send help from Zion and support the King, we indeed can say that Christ, the Anointed One, was strengthened for the task. In verse 3, the King makes offerings and burnt sacrifices. The king's offerings are to be deemed acceptable by God. May you regard those offerings with favor. Well, listen, friends, in the ministry of Christ, before the cross, what kind of family does Jesus grow up in in Nazareth? He grows up in a family that honors the Levitical regulations of the Torah, of the Old Testament. He keeps their feasts and he marks their calendrical festivals. You read in the Gospels where he goes during the times of the feast to Jerusalem as someone keeping the law and offering offerings. He would approach the temple with acceptable sacrifices. In fact, those sacrifices, those burnt offerings would one day be fulfilled by his own work on the cross. He came to be the acceptable sacrifice. In verse 4, they pray, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. So this is about the king's desire and plans. Oh, how complete was the mission of the Son of God and all His plans. His desires were fulfilled. His plans came to pass. On the cross, He announces it is finished. His desires and plans are not left in the dustbin of history, scattered and tattered and incomplete. But all that the Lord Jesus set out to accomplish, He does. 
Verse 5 declares the joy of God's people over the king's salvation. Because when we think about what King Jesus accomplished on the cross, we shout with joy. We proclaim jubilantly over the victory of Christ. Because in his case, he's delivered from death after accomplishing salvation for sinners. We shout for joy over the salvation of the king because his deliverance was not a deliverance from sins he had committed. He was in our place bearing our sins so that we might be delivered by him. We therefore shout with joy over what God has done on the cross and we set up our banners. Yes, we raise them emblazoned with the name above every name. We say with these banners that our allegiance is to Jesus and our confession is that Jesus is Lord. In verse five, they say, "May the may you." Uh, in verse five, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Yes, the Son of God is a man of prayer in the Gospels, and my friends, it is good news that the Son of God prays and intercedes for us even now. His petitions are heard for us. They are not ignored. They are never rejected. The petitions of Jesus come to pass unfailingly. In verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed one. Oh, yes, indeed. The anointed one is ultimately the Christ, the son of David, the set apart rescuer, the redeemer of sinners and the Messiah of nations. In verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. We don't want to put our hope in rituals and incantations. We don't rely upon the stars and the phases of the moon. Our hope is not in horses and chariots or anything else that isn't God. The people of God want to hope in God because he's unfailingly trustworthy. We hope in the name of Christ. The name of the only begotten Son of God. The name that is above every name. In verse 8, they, the enemies of God, collapse and fall. But we rise and stand upright. We long for this day. We long for the day of Christ's return when evil collapses And falls. We long for the return of Christ when the people of God rise from the dead and stand upright and dwell in the presence of God in everlasting light and glory. We long for the day where the victory of God permeates the heavens and the earth and creation is made new. Verse 9 O Lord, save the king. David prayed that. But I want you to know, my friends, he answered this prayer of David. The prayer that God would deliver the king. There is an empty tomb outside Jerusalem bearing witness that God heard the prayer. He has delivered Jesus from death. He is the deliverer who shall rescue us. When David prayed, God save the king. God has answered that prayer by raising the Lord Jesus from the grave. As goes the king. So goes the people of the king. And that's us. Our future is wrapped up in what happened to him. And the king, the Lord Jesus, has been raised from the dead unto embodied immortality. And he dwells in everlasting light and glory. His present is our future. And that's really good news for us. And what this means is that beyond all the temporal troubles and strife, Beyond all of the unpredictabilities of life, beyond all the sufferings, beyond all the things that we cannot control, everything is going to be all right.
I want you to hear me because Jesus has been raised from the dead. I'm saying to you this morning, everything is going to be all right. You keep hoping in Christ. Keep reading his word. Keep following him faithfully. He has risen from the dead. And everything is going to be all right. Let's stand together as we pray.